1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for Composite Developments fly rods and fishing accessories. Tech, precision, ingenuity, legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host Lauren Carnop, and this is the February room.
2: Welcome to the February Room. Today, my guest is Eddie Allwell. He's the outfitter at Fish's Eddie O. Welcome to the show, Eddie.
3: Hi, Lauren. How are you?
2: Oh, I'm doing great. And um, I have to say, Eddie, I've gone to your website, and the first thing that I was able to notice is that you are quoted as this is where the stories begin. And I think that's such a great way to start this ep- this podcast is with a story, and I know you have some, so I'd love to hear one from you.
3: Uh, I've got a long story. <laughs> Let's hear it,
2: I've got time. Um,
3: I was thinking about this a lot lately, my journey, and uh, I really can attribute my life right now to this one moment and in place and in time um, in, in 1975, when I caught my first trout in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. Um, I came from a family of of fishermen. My brothers primarily, I have two older brothers, and always took me around. My dad wasn't an outdoorsman, uh, but my grandfather on my mother's side was. He died when I was young, but he instilled the, you know, fishing in, and outdoors into my brothers, and, and they picked up where he left off and, and took me along. So. 13 years old 1975 I think it was July my oldest brother Bob he was 28 um, and he had a friend who had a cabin up in the Catskills and he was going up for the weekend I think he was going to golf or do something with him and he said you want to come and there's a trout stream there you can go fishing so I was like sure and I'm so thankful that my brothers were so willing to drag their little brother along even you know in their 20s I mean who wants a little kid you know following your heels around. But anyhow, we got up there and my other brother, Jim, set me up with a little spinning rod, like a light spinning rod and told me how to bounce the bait off the bottom and gave me some MEP spinners and had everything I needed. And uh, so my brother said, "Okay, we're going and there's the stream. Here's your stuff. We'll see you tonight. Don't get hurt. Don't get into trouble. (laughs) So I went across uh, from the cabin and it was just this and, and the thing is, it was so long ago, it's, it's so crystal clear in my memory. And uh, there, it's just crystal clear, little mountain stream that you could, you know, took two hops to get across it. And my brother told me to fish the pools and I got out there and started drifting my bait down into this pool. And I just loved how the water was so crystal clear and the rocks were like emerald on the bottom. And I just thought it was like one of the prettiest things I'd ever seen. And so I drifted this, I don't know, it was a salmon egg or a worm or whatever. And I, I think they were probably stock trout, um, to this undercut bank in this deep pool. And I saw a flash and my line went tight and I caught this little brookie and I was so ecstatic and I managed to end up catching, I don't know, six or eight trout that day, hitting all the little pools. And I had this stringer of brookies. And so... You know, my brother came back from golfing and there I was with this stringer of trout. He like grabbed my rod and ran over to the creek <laughs> and he's yeah. like, I want to catch some. And, uh, but that really like it just, I always liked to fish. I started fishing when I was four and lakes and the ocean. Uh, but I just like fell in love with trout fishing and the fish were so colorful and beautiful. And I just said, you know, I want to trout fish. And I started reading books about trout fishing and, you know, fishing magazines and, Anything I could, I got information on it. And then I realized in a short amount of time that fly fishing was really the way to, to trout fish. And so a year or two later, I got a cheap fly rod for my birthday. And, and that started my, my fly fishing career. But that is so important because it, it really. It, it sounds silly, but it changed the trajectory of my life.
2: Oh, I don't think it's silly at all. And those small brookies—they're the most colorful. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they aren't, they don't have the mass, and I, I think they're a lot more fun sometimes to catch because you get—they yeah. just have a really a tons of beauty to them. Um, yeah. And I know we were talking about earlier because you really do have that—that that base of how important fly fishing is for you you didn't start off in a career as a outfitter or guide. You had a very different, uh, stressful life as working in corporate wall street. And I'd love to hear your journey Mm -hmm. from going from something as intense as that to living in a small town in Montana. Uh,
3: Yeah. Well, as you know, like I was saying, as a kid, I just started reading everything about, um, fly fishing and trout fishing and, um, you know, I read about Montana, and everything I read was about, like, the Madison and the firehole. And fortunately, my other brother, Jim, decided to take me on a trip to Yellowstone to fish all these rivers we'd been reading about in books. And so in 1977, at 15, uh, my brother Jim, who was about 24, and his two buddies came out, and we backpacked around Yellowstone for about 10 days. And we drove, and we hit the Madison, the firehole, and all these— these rivers that I had just read so much about. And you know, being a kid from New Jersey, I had never seen anything like Montana. And I, I remember telling my friends when I came home, it's like, I could look as far as I could see and not see a house or look out and not see a light. I could not believe that coming from the most congested state in the country. And so that continued my journey. And that again, started with that brook trout. And I started doing research in the library about careers. You know, I was getting closer to college age and starting to think about, you know, where I wanted to go to college and what I wanted to major in. And I read a lot about, you know, fisheries biologists. And I was thinking maybe I'd like to be a park ranger in Yellowstone. And uh, so at some point, I guess when I was about 17, I told my father, you know, what I wanted to major and what I wanted to do for a living. He looked like he was gut shot. My dad was a very practical, conservative guy. He grew up as a kid in the Depression. He served in World War II, and he just looked at me and he said, "You cannot make a living at that outdoor (laughs) crop." He goes, "You do that on the weekends. You need to get a real job." And uh, so, unfortunately, he quashed my my passion. for the outdoors and and wanting to pursue this career. And, you know, being a kid, you listen to your parents and their advice and they were helping me pay for school. So I um went to a small liberal arts school, uh Lemoyne College in upstate New York, and I got an economics degree. So um so I, I really enjoyed college. I, I got good enough grades to stay there. I knew that was important and had a probably a above average social life, um, and average grade. So, yeah. So yeah, I got out of college in 1984. And for those who are not young enough to remember, it was, uh, it was a real time of boom economically. Ronald Reagan was in office and the economy was thriving. And, uh, so I, and again, I told my father, well, maybe after I get out of college, Um, I'm gonna drive around the country for the summer and go out west and fish. And he and my mother were like, "Uh, are you kidding me? We just put you through college and now you wanna go traipse around the country? No, you're getting a job. So fortunate, and we lived in New Jersey just outside of New York City, you know, it's a commuter town. Um, So I went on spring break and uh, I had lined up several interviews and I actually had a job uh, working in New York for a large bank, Manufacturer's Hanover Trust Company, um, before I even graduated. And so I got out of college and got my suit on and, and went to work. I was in a management training program in an operations department of the bank. Um, basically, operations is you process payments and send mm-hmm. the checks and Keep all the computer files and all that. So I was bouncing around different departments of the bank and, uh, I was really unhappy (laughs) with my life and where I was. Um, I had a, you know, wonderful girlfriend from college and, you know, I just couldn't commit and, uh, because I just didn't want this life for myself. And so, and I remember being a young kid on the train at like maybe 22 or 23. And I looked at this man on the train and maybe he was like mid-40s and he just looked tired and sad. You know, his, his suit was kind of wrinkled. He had a big can of beer on his briefcase. And he just, you know, and I was just wondering, you know, like, did he just get fired? Did his wife leave him? And is he in a life he doesn't want to be <laughs> And And I'm like, and I remember I clearly thinking, it's like, and, and I don't begrudge people their lives and their choices in lives. Um, and I don't want to judge them. But I did not want to be that when I was 45 years old in a career I didn't pick and, you know, working for some asshole and and having a tough life that I was unhappy about and having regrets. So I continued on my journey in the bank. Um, pursued my outdoor activities on the weekends. And then in, in about two years, I, I got into a department. Um, it was uh, foreign exchange trading. It was basically, uh, we were money changers, currency sh- um, trading. And what we would do, there's an exchange rate between the US dollar and other foreign currencies. And it, it was kind of like trading commodities. That rate is constantly changing. And so we trade big amounts of money, um, exchange it you know, between Do- Deutschmarks and, and the US dollar, yen, and those other currencies. Basically, what we were doing was gambling with the bank's money to make a profit. So I got into the back office of this department, and I looked out at this trading desk, and we were just processing payments. So every currency exchange you make has to have a delivery of that money to another bank. So if I did a trade in Deutschmarks, my my Berlin office has to send it to somebody else's bank in Germany. You can't exchange foreign currencies with in and out of their country. So I looked out in the trading room, and there's like all these young guys, like, you know, my age, maybe a little bit older. And they're just like standing up and laughing and like throwing a football around and yelling and screaming, talking on two phones at the same time, slamming them down. And I'm like wow, this looks cool. What's going on here? And so, you know, I watched them and thought, boy, that'd be a a good opportunity to maybe get into there. Um, And so at the time in Wall Street, firms would like poach traders from other firms. So they'd like hire the whole desk. They'd hire six traders from one bank and just take them and they'd put them into theirs. So this is what happened at our bank. And a bunch of the good traders got poached and they just, they needed people. They needed warm bodies to fill the seats and they needed a junior trader. Um, and you know, you start as a junior, you do the grunt work and work your way up. And they're like, do you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And, uh, so it was really, um, a very fun and exciting time. I, it was, and I remember at that time, I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, I liked going to work. Uh, I was young. It was fast paced. Um, you know, it was like being in college again and, and you had tremendous free reign. As long as you traded, did your job, made money for the bank, um, they pretty much let us go. We didn't have deadlines or meetings or, you know, reports or presentations or any of that crap. It was just, it was just a game. And, uh, and so I, I really, I loved it. And it's just, you know, you hear people talk about the big eighties and i don't know if you've ever seen the wolf of wall street
2: that was exactly what i was gonna say i was like was it like the wolf of wall street that's why i've been like on the tip of my tongue so
3: not as extreme as the movie (laughs) but yes it was pretty extreme um we had you know expense accounts we had brokers that would entertain us and you know we went to the i was you know 25 years old Dining at the finest restaurants In New York City That I could never afford On my own dime um, I mean There was champagne and caviar And I remember it Sitting in this Russian restaurant Doing shots of frozen vodka Eating caviar And drinking champagne And I'm just like Some punk kid And uh, there was Oceans and oceans of alcohol um, There were illicit drugs uh, And lots of strippers And some I partook in, some I did not. I will leave that to the imagination. So, so being 25 and only a couple of years out of college, I mean, this was pretty fun and wild. But, you know, over time, it, it was very stressful. You know, you had to make money. If you didn't make money, you got fired. They give you a budget. You have to make, you know, a million bucks for this month, this year. And, and you'd get a bonus based on your, your revenue, what you generated. But then every year it was like, okay, well, yeah, you achieved your target, but the bank's not doing that well, so we really can't give you the bonus that we promised you, and it's going to be pretty light. Oh, and by the way, since you did so well in meeting your targets, we're going to raise it 30% for next year. (laughs) It's like, so make sure you hit it, or we're going to (laughs) fire.
2: The ladder just kept getting taller and taller. You just had to keep climbing.
3: And, and currency markets are a 24-7 market. They're always open. Um, it's not like a stock exchange that opens at nine and closes at four. Um, and so they travel around the world too. So we would have to, we'd have, um, positions, uh, in currencies that we'd have to monitor overnight. So we'd be on the phone in the middle of the night. I'd get a call from a Tokyo office saying, you know, my position was going south or I made money. Do I want to take profit? So, you never had any rest. You know, you're out partying, you come home, the phone rings at two o'clock in the morning, you get up, we had to be in the office at 7am and it just started right over again. Um, so this was great. It was still fun, exciting. As time went on though, I, I looked around and there wasn't anybody over 40 doing this and because of the burnout factor of it. And you know, and it was a bunch of young guys and you'd think, you know, Wall Street, you know, they're Wharton business school guys or have their MBAs, but really the traders, most of the ones that I worked with were kind of like just regular guys, you know, from Brooklyn, New Jersey. Yeah, they had a college degree, but they were, you know, kind of rough and fast paced and, you know, they're hustlers and, you know, there's a lot of swearing <laughs> and, and it was pretty, a, a pretty rough environment. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I think with my ADD really helped um, <laughs> my personal because everything was just changing constantly and you're just always making different decisions. So as time went on, we're getting into the to the early nineties. Um, you know, mergers and acquisitions were a, a big part of business back then. And what was happening was that in the banking industry, a lot of the major banks in the United States and New York were beginning to merge and um, I worked for Manufacturers Hanover Trust Company, which is non-existent now. And it's, it's part of the JP Morgan Chase Bank, which is about five or six banks that merged over the years. So the first merger I went through was a uh, chemical bank merged with our bank. And I survived that merger, but I watched them. I watched them fire, uh, half the people in, in the bank, in my department. And I remember, you know, I have these moments that I just, that just stick with me. And I remember when one friend, he was, I don't know, maybe 29, but he had like four kids. He lost his job and he had like four little kids, one with special needs. And, and I was, and he was crying and I was like, oh my God. And it just had a big impact. And again, I was like, well, I'm not going to let this happen to me. <laughs> and uh, so I survived that merger and I, I bounced around from different banks over the years but I always had this unsettling feeling that this wasn't my be-all end-all because one it, it wasn't my true passion and then I realized looking at this that there isn't a future in this some point in my life in my late 30s or 40s I got to find a new career and I may be out of my ass if if getting caught up in all these mergers so so I bounced around to a couple of foreign banks and you know tried to make a living doing it the business got harder the margins got tighter became more competitive and then technology took over and um, that took a lot of the human factor out of it and it changed the industry and you know just like manufacturing has been in fact impacted by technology so was what we did and now there's only a fraction of the people doing what we do it's all it's all computer generated so so the writing was on the wall and I bounced around some ideas and thought about maybe getting into teaching. My mother was a teacher. Um, I didn't want to be a salesman. My dad was a salesman. Um, and so, you know, always had this dream of living in Montana and, you know, living out my dream. And I remember I I did ski trip. The one benefit of making a good living, I, I got to take lots of good trips. So every winter I'd I'm an avid skier too. Um, we take trips out west, and and then I do my two week summer vacation every year in Montana. And I spent all my free time, my vacation time, out west. <laughs> and I remember we did a, we went to British Columbia to Whistler, and it was probably 1990, maybe 91, and we had the opportunity to go heli skiing, and which if you're a skier, it's an amazing experience for you know untracked bottomless powder and it was a wonderful day and a wonderful experience and i've never done it since but it was incredible so we stop in this big meadow and they bring out like hot tea and lunch and we're all talking to the guides and so i started talking to the to the one guide and he was a you know mountain guide ski guide and i said so what do you do the rest of the year and he's like well i'm a river guide and i was like and he had a family and so nice and i'm like wow you mean you can make a living at this <laughs> and that like planted the seed like maybe i can make a living doing the two things i like most fly fishing and and skiing and um so that started my my track um And then over the years, you know, several things happened. My my dad passed away. That had a big impact in my life. He and I were very close and I loved him very much. And and some people think, you know, with my story, I would resent my parents, but I don't because their intent was that I have a good life, but it was in the realm of the way they grew up. And for them to have your own home and a good job, that was their dream. And they had that and they couldn't understand. Dad was like, work and fun, don't go together.
2: (laughs) Did he pass away while you were, um, still working in Wall Street or did he pass away when you? Yeah, I was
3: still on Wall Street when he passed away. And and that had a big impact on me. I mean, it's just, you know, you look at your life and do I want to look back and, you know, what I want to leave behind? I, I think I had like an early midlife crisis, but you know, they instilled a lot of good things in us and, um, you know, a good work ethic and a good education was a path to a better life. And I'm actually glad I started my career later because I got business experience. I saved my money so I could live on a much lower salary out in Montana. <laughs> so a lot of real good things came from it. Um, so finally, you know, one thing led to another. I'd been coming to Montana every summer and traveling around the state and hitting all the different rivers and I said, you know, I, I'm going to do this. You know, I talked to some folks about it. And uh, I actually went to a career counselor. I was taking tests to kind of think about what career I could do. And she's, she was like, you know, you're really passionate about the outdoors. You need to follow that. And so I was like, all right, I'm in. And I talked to my brothers and sister who were not surprised. Um, and they were all for it, you know. And and my mother, oh, she was horrified <laughs> that I would give up my career to be a fishing guide of all things and a ski bum. And and she was just mortified. And it took her a long while to come around. So in 1999, I was 37. I decided to move to Missoula. I, I fished the Madison area a lot in the Yellowstone area when I was younger as a kid and in my 20s. And I felt that area was really well exploited even by the 1990s. And I had some friends who uh, a couple summers came out and they were fishing the Missoula area. And they said, why don't you come out and meet us? And, and our vacations coincided. So in the early nineties, I came out to Missoula and we fished the Blackfoot and the Bitterroot. And, you know, this was something that I, I hadn't really read much about. You know, everything that you read was, you know, the Henry's Fork, the Madison, the Yellowstone. And one thing, the only thing written about the Clark Fork was that it was polluted. And even some of the things I read about the Bitterroot were were not that positive. You know, it was dewatered and it was a busy valley. But I got out on the Bitterroot and I was like, this is amazing. And I love the three rivers. Um, you know, you could fish the Blackfoot. You could actually fish Rock Creek, too. And I was like, wow, what a choice. And, and not a lot of people, it wasn't on their radar. And even though a river runs through it had come out, you know, Robert Redford said they couldn't fish it couldn't film it on the Blackfoot because it had been so degraded from logging and mining over the years. So I figured this would be a good place to start. And so my goal was to, to live in Missoula because I was young in my thirties. Uh, I didn't want to be like a single 37 year old guy in some little podunk town. Um, I'd never meet anyone. And, uh, so I got to Missoula in the fall. Um, I couldn't find a place to live. There wasn't much housing there then, and I came in the fall, so all the college students had rented everything. So I finally found a place in Stevensville uh, on Stevie River Road, and it was a little rental on the river. And I'm like, well, that can't be bad. It was like 600 a month. And I said, well, and it was like a two-bedroom. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll do this, and I'll live here for a year, and then I'll move to Missoula. And I, I haven't left Stevensville since I've lived there for 21 years. So, um, and I, I just love the Bitterroot. I'm a, I'm an avid dry fly fisherman and the Bitterroot's probably one of the best dry fly rivers in the state. Most abundant hatches. And I never saw a river where you could fish dry flies from March till November. It was just incredible. And, uh, I started working for other outfitters and then over a few years, um, got my outfitting license and, and kind of took it off from there. And uh, I just, you know, I love it. I love the business aspect of it. I love the people. I love that I'm outdoors every day on the river. And I I have no regrets and I've never looked back.
2: Well, and how does your mom feel? I mean, did she change her views on your new found profession?
3: She did on Montana. So it took some, um, some really bad circumstances for her to come around. Um, you know, initially, you know, I had her out here and, uh, a year or two later, my brother brought her out and she's like, well, I know why you like it here. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, but she never accepted it. I remember I went home for Christmas, uh, one year and I stayed with her for a couple of days and I was out partying with some of my old friends and I was sleeping in and, and, uh, and she came in, she's like, you know, it was like 10 o'clock. She's like, when are you going to get up? And I was like, I I don't know, mom, I'm on vacation. Can I sleep in? And she just looked at me pissed off and she goes, your life is a vacation. And she turned around and walked out of the room. (laughs) No, no. Yes. You know, Uh it's so
2: funny because, you know, Justin guides here and there. And um, Uh I think there's this idea that, um, you know, everyone's like, oh, what a dream job and um, mm-hmm. and it is a dream job in so many senses that you do get to do what you love, but it is a lot of work. you're waking up I mean five in the morning when mm-hmm. it's if you have some place further places to go, you're getting the cooler. you're also a, yeah. a chef you're um, you're also a safety person you want to make sure that everyone is safe in the boat so you're constantly looking and then by the time you get done with the river it's 10 o'clock you're cleaning the boat and then you're back up at 5 o'clock in the morning and for Justin he's constantly um, thinking about what do I need to do tomorrow to try and get mm-hmm. my clients on some fish? And, um, yeah. and you're also trying to think if I don't get my clients some fish, how am I going to make this a good experience for them? So you're an entertainer. Right. There's a lot of, a lot of hats you yeah. have to wear. So, um, yeah, it's,
3: <laughs> I, I, I do, I do resent that a little when people say that, Oh, you have a, you know, I, yes. and I do have a great job. I'm not stuck in an office, I'm outdoors, yes. but it's not like I don't work. Like you said, you're up at five in the morning. You got to do lunches. You got to tie some extra flies that you're running out of. It's physically demanding rowing. You're out in the hot sun. Um, You have people that don't have that much skill. and Maybe the conditions are tough. Like, how am I going to get this person into some fish? And I mean, I take every trip. as like, this means so much to them. I want this to be their best trip ever. And and it's it's pressure. And And then because we're seasonal, you work seven days a week. Yes. And for three weeks in a row, you know, and... It is a job and it's a business and I spend a lot of time on the business at night and then I come home, I get to answer phone calls and line up guides and I, I don't I love it though. But I think some people have that, you know, glorified image. We do work hard. And yes. uh, a lot of my clients get it. They look at me and they say, Well, you work pretty hard all
2: day. Well and especially so, with you um, being a guide since nineteen ninety nine, yeah. you kind of have yeah. your clientele. They're like, I know who this is. But the biggest thing that you can tell on all the guide mm-hmm. outfitters is look at their hands. I mean, Justin's yeah. hands look so awful I, uh-huh. in terms of there's calluses. He, he rows yeah. the boat and his shoulders hurt and it's a taxing job on the body. And, um, yes. yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And, and like you said, it's, you get done with the season, but then you're constantly trying to fill in other work when you're not Mm -hmm. working. And, um, it's, it's, it's a life, you pay for that lifestyle and, um, yeah, yeah, you you pay with it, with your, with your body and, um, energy. I also have to say, I really do appreciate when I was reading, um, about your bio is that you said, um, you also have patience. And I think Mm -hmm. as a guide, um, because I take this for my husband who's been teaching me um, how to fly fish and how much patience it really takes somebody to learn how to fish because I can tell you that and maybe it's just because it's a spousal thing but sometimes Justin's like 45 degrees the boat and I'm and I'll be like doing it. He's like, I said 45 degrees to the boat. I'm like, wait, I, I, I did 245. He's like, Lord, do I need to teach you some math skills? So um, it is one of those things, too, that you kind of forget about. That's a very important skill for a guide and outfitter.
3: Absolutely. And I, I got the greatest compliment. One lady told me, She's like, you're so patient. You should have like seven kids. <laughs> am like, no, thank you're
2: like, you. You're like, I, 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 my kids are my, are, can be sometimes the people on the boat. Um, I also saw that you did receive the outstanding outfitter of the year in 2014. I mean, that is a huge uh, award. And can you tell me a little bit about how you achieved that?
3: Yeah, it was from the, um, Montana chapter of the American Fisheries Society, which is made up of, you know, pretty much fisheries biologists, um from around the country, but this was the, particularly the Montana chapter and they, they gave it to me for my, my work in conservation over the years. And uh, I was really proud of that. And I work a lot, I've always grown up with the ethic that, and it, it seemed like everything I read about fly fishing and trout fishing, it was kind of conservation and, and went hand in hand with, with trout fishing and fly fishing. So I was a TU member since I was a kid. Um, and then I you know, I really wanted to get active when I, when I came out here. So I, I was on the, the chapter, the Bitterit chapter, and I was two years as the president, um, worked on a little bit of restoration. I did a lot of advocacy at the state level, uh, speaking against cyanide heap leach mining, motorized restrictions on on the Clark Fork, uh, trying to think of some of the other things, setbacks from development to try to protect the resources. And then after that stint with Trout Unlimited, I, had an opportunity to join an organization it's called the Bitterroot Water Forum. It was a small nonprofit and it was started by some ladies in the Bitterroot and it, it pretty much was just a forum, uh, you know, they they talked, had meetings and did advocacy on on water related issues in the Bitterroot and it, it was kind of going under through lack of support, didn't have much money and it was probably going to fade. So. One of the fellas who decided to get on the board and be the president asked me if I would like to join. And I said, I was kind of burned out by my five years of uh, on Toronto Limited. I felt like I spent a lot of time fighting battles and, and arguing and, and just not getting anywhere. I put a lot of time and effort in and I didn't have much to show for it on the ground. We only did one, I did an Embrace a Stream grant and project, which was great. Um, but the other stuff's like, wow, I put a lot of time into this and I really don't feel like I've achieved much. Um, so I told him, I said, I will do this, but I want us to focus this organization on, on habitat restoration because I feel without, you know, Montana's dependent on wild trout. You can't have a healthy fishery without the habitat that they're dependent on. And and I always felt that was a part of Trout Unlimited, a big deal of it was protecting and restoring habitat. So I said I'll do this as long as we we do habitat and I don't want to do any kind of legal battles or arguments. And I think as a watershed group, we need to be neutral and represent all the users of the watershed. And because as soon as you take a side, you alienate people and Things are so divided, you know, in the bitter. It, it's so political. And I just said, you know, it's like banging your head against the wall. You have nothing to show for it and you just get frustrated. So, so he said, fine. He goes, I'm happy. We'll, we'll run it that way. And so that's the way the organization is run. And we kind of rubbed a couple nickels together. We were able to find, hire a young lady as our executive director and we could only pay her half time, but her husband, and her boyfriend was out here. She wanted to move to Montana. And we hired her and she became, we found enough money. She got grants and, and ran full time. And now we have a staff of, uh, four people and an AmeriCorps member and the water forum. I'm not on the board anymore. I was on for nine years and I was the board chair and I termed out, but we've, they've restored, you know, miles and miles of tributary streams in, in the Bitterroot watershed. Um, which, as you know, the tribs are the, the hatcheries of the Big River, and there are a lot of problems with sediment and nutrient and temperature pollution, and and that's where a lot of the focus was on that. So I guess for all of those things is why I got that um, that award from the American Fisheries Society. So it, it was kind of it was a really important thing for me because here's some biologists giving me an award at, when I wanted to be a bio, fisheries biologist when I was a kid. But could, my dad wouldn't let me, and uh, and so at least hey, I'm getting record. I'm a struggling fisheries biologist, I guess.
2: <laughs> it kind of comes full full circle. I mean, I have to say, yeah. I think I see a little bit of Wall Street with your work to make angling and fishing in the rivers better. Like you're also, yeah, juggling and uh, promoting that. So I feel that we still mm-hmm. have a little bit of Wall Street in you. Yeah,
3: yeah I. I read a thing about Paul Roos recently who passed away. Uh, he was a famous Montana outfitter and he started working for a fellow by the name of Pat Barnes in West Yellowstone. And I remember this quote. I, I wrote a article about him in my newspaper column that, um, conservation and, uh, good business go hand in hand. And he taught him that ethic. But, you know, it's, it's not just the business aspect of it. I just love trout streams and the places they live. And, and I, and I'm so passionate about it. You know, business aside, I want to save that for myself and other people and that experience.
2: Well, and it really takes a people to be passionate 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 about changes because if we don't Mm -hmm. have people who are passionate things won't be changed so thank you so much for being passionate angler because you do as you as i go on the river and i have these moments of being on raw creek or on the Bitterroot, and it's so beautiful you think that's because it's naturally like that and it is naturally beautiful but it takes effort to continue Mm -hmm. to keep the natural beauty because there's a lot of forces as montana is getting bigger people are coming on the you know people are coming to fish which as they Mm -hmm. should but you know there is there's times where you're on the river and you're you do worry about it you're like there's a lot of people on the river today are the fish going to be okay and i think it's good for people to question and to be um passionate to to bring these issues up because if we don't talk about it and we there won't be changes so um mm-hmm. thank you for for being a voice for the beauty of montana and the rivers and the fish that live in it and the people who want to enjoy it
3: oh you're welcome yeah thank you. no it
2: is <laughs> and i think i think we don't say thank you enough and i think yeah. it's seriously one of those things that this these days i i like to just be like oh i i get to live in missoula and i get to go down by right. the river and there's people who are really working really hard to make sure that that's something i get to do every day because if we don't will it'll be shut and it'll be taken away from us and so right. um yeah thank you so much so um eddie is there a good way i mean coronavirus is obviously affected mm-hmm. i hate even saying that all the time like coronavirus is affecting our economy and also mm-hmm. guides um are you taking Planning the spring season is coming up. Are you taking people? Can people, how do people get in touch with you and if they want a a guide with Eddie, Mm -hmm.
3: oh well. Well, I I, uh, am booking trips for next year. Uh, I think now the latest news says that we, you know, the second half from June on next year, maybe back to somewhat normal season as the vaccine gets distributed. So I'm still booking trips. and I'll book trips for March and April. If people haven't heard of the Bitterroot, it's famous for that spring squalor hatch, which is a large stonefly. Um, but if they do want to call me, they can call me at 406-207-5678. Um, I have a website. It's fisheseddyo.com. And it's spelled F-I-S-H-S-E-D-D-Y-O.com. Uh, and I also have uh, email eddie at fisheseddio.com. There's a good story between the, about the name of my business.
2: Actually, that Uh, was going to be my
3: next question. mm
2: -hmm. I'm curious, how did you come up with uh, a fisheseddio?
3: Well, I thought it was a really good idea for a business name, but in hindsight, a business in Montana, not so good. There was, uh, we used to fish the east branch of the Delaware River, uh, in upstate New York, which is the Delaware is a great tailwater fishery. It's, uh, there's two dams on the the east and the west branch uh, from the New York City Reservoir System. And it's it's a true tailwater and it's all wild fish. And they, they market it as, you know, the best western fishing east of the Mississippi. And it really is. I mean, we don't have the numbers that we do out here, but big wild fish. So there was a town on the east branch of the Delaware called Fish's Eddy. All the towns along the Delaware are named after an eddy in the river. So there's there's deep eddy pond eddy long eddy and there's this one town called fishes eddy and they spell it f-i-s-h-s and i have no idea why they do that that was one of the first mistakes so my friend my nickname has been eddio since i was a kid and so my friends and i would go fishing and they're like oh yeah we're gonna go stop at fishes Edio and and do some fishing and it just we named that town became fishes O. and i thought wow what a great name for a a fly fishing business. Well, yeah, if I was in the if in upstate in the Catskills, people would get it. I came out here, nobody knows what the hell Fishes Eddie is. They say you spell fishes wrong because there's no E in it, S. Every time I try to give somebody my website, it's like they get the spelling wrong because they cut the E in fishes. So it's been like a total disaster, but. I've had it for 21 years. I got to stick with it.
2: <laughs> yeah. You're like, I stuck with it now. Everybody knows me. Yeah. And, and, right. and to be honest, though, it does kind of stick into you your mind like, oh, did he mean to spell it without the E? Yeah. But uh, what a great story. I love mm-hmm. it. So um, real quick question before we sign out: What is your go to guide flag? Yeah. I want to know.
3: Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the one that's working at the time. Uh, really, I you know I love my go-to drive my go-to fly is is a dry fly. Um, I love to dry fly fish, and I love to match the hatch. That's what I learned, you know, technical dry fly fishing and on the Delaware. And I just really enjoy that. And I I know people always ask that question, what's your fly, but favorite fly? But there's, I mean, I'm always changing. You know, different times a year you're fishing a different dry fly. Um, so I really don't have a favorite. Go to fly. It's whatever dry fly working at the time.
2: See, um, Eddie, you're already the best I, guide I'm out sorry. there. You're already you're like, I'm. And <laughs> someone was like, it's this fly. You're like even during the May fly, that's what fly you're going to be using. So see, yeah. you're already mm-hmm. you're on top of it, Eddie. You already All know right. what you're, what's on the river. So I appreciate you talk, talking with me today and hearing your stories. And I really do hope that we get to get together and maybe we can do some social distancing casting. <laughs>